0: Well, it's great to be back with you. Thank you for allowing uh, my wife Melody and the boys and I just to get away Uh, for a week. We were able to go south, and uh, while you were experiencing back pain from shoveling snow, we were experiencing pain from sunburn. So thank you for allowing us to make that exchange as we were able to go down in Florida. Thanks for letting us suffer there in the sun. And I'm really thankful for Roman and the message that you delivered uh, last Sunday. We were able to listen to that. Just a powerful word about the gospel and the grace that is given to us. And I found myself uh, reflecting on that in need of God's grace when we pulled into our driveway and learned that our mailbox had been completely obliterated and uh, needed to replace it. So it was a very timely message for me personally to hear. I I come to you this morning very encouraged. Um, Two weeks ago, I was standing before you just sharing with you some of the reports that we had heard about what was taking place at Asbury University. And as Melanie and I were about ready to load up our vehicle, we were contemplating on whether we should, on our way to Florida, as you drive through Kentucky, uh, should we make a stop and just see for ourselves what that is all about, understanding that we don't need to go to a place to experience revival. Jesus is always present. He is always near. Um, but we prayed about it, and we decided, let's, let's just drive. And we knew the service that night would end at 1 a.m., and our GPS said we'd arrive around 12.30 so we thought, well, we can maybe take in the last half hour of this. So we drove down, and uh, boys, us, loaded up in the auditorium that's called Hughes Auditorium. And fortunately, when you arrive that time of night, you don't have to worry about overflow seating. There's a place for you. And as we walked in, an usher uh, took m- my wife and three youngest up to more towards the middle of the auditorium, and then the two oldest and I, we were on the very back row, and uh, I'm not a back row guy. I I get so distracted. And so I was looking around and and thinking of all the ways that I could be distracted. But eventually, uh, my eyes uh, went up. And and by then, at that time of night, there was no more preaching. There wasn't any more testimony. It was more of a, a celebration of what I think God had been doing in the days before that. And a few just things that stand out for me is, I don't know that I've ever been in such a worship service where each color of skin was represented. It was truly magnificent to look around up on the balcony, to look in the auditorium. And and it wasn't just a few isolated people of different color. There was like a predominantly a, a just a, a great chorus of people for all different colors enthusiastically worshiping Jesus. I would say that the service itself seemed to be spontaneous, not chaotic. And and so one song would start, and then someone else would start another song. And there was such enthusiastic worship. Now, they sang new songs, and I think our family knew a good portion of them, but not all of them. And there were times that they would clap just out of sheer enthusiasm of the truths that they were singing. It wasn't that they were timed perfectly with the beat. They were like, I can't wait to get to this next line because it's changed my life. It was, so that was something that really stood out. Something that also stood out was very, at the very end, um, one of the, 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 the teachers got up and said, how many of you, this is going to be your last night? And so all of us that were only making one night of it stood up, and then he had everyone else kind of put their hands over us and and commission us to say, now you are going out and you're to take this message that you've heard and, and share it with others. As we left that night, I don't know how many hundreds, if there are a couple of thousand maybe that was leaving the auditorium, as we were walking our way back to the vehicle, I just noticed that there were just spontaneous groups of people that would just cluster up and just start praying with one another. And that's not something you see every day. As we went to our vehicle, there was a IGA grocery store, I don't know how many of you remember IGA, but there was a sign that did not say the price of bananas or the price of milk that week, but it said we serve something like this, we serve a great God. And I thought to myself, well, that's, that must be what revival looks like when it comes to a small town. Um, so that was a great way for us to start a vacation. And as we've just been reflecting on that. Now, as I was listening to Haven today, this radio program, Charles Morris said that that, that revival there at Asbury, if that's what you call it, has spread to over 200 campuses through, throughout the U.S. And I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that not everything that's taking place there is, is of God or of, ordained by Scripture, but where the gospel's being preached, and where reconciled relationships are taking place, where people are crying out to have a revived life, and there's authentic worship taking place, I think that's something we ought to celebrate. It's something that I long for, not only for my life, but the family of our church as well, to experience that revived life, and for the campuses that are around us. And one one of the characteristics that I've been hearing about over the last few weeks it isn't the celebrities, it's the common, ordinary people that God is using. The ones that are flawed, the ones that have experienced failure. And that's what I want us to look at today as we resume our study in the Gospel of John, as we are looking at one instance here of a flawed man whose name is Peter. So let's just consider for a moment, if it's possible to get that screen on for me, that'd be awesome. Let's just consider a bit of Peter's past, shall we? Let me give to you a real brief uh, biographical sketch of Peter in the New Testament. First of all, he was a son, and his father's name was Jonah. Now, not the Jonah of the Old Testament, but that's what he potentially was named after. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. His older, he was the older brother of Andrew. And if you remember the gospel stories, there was Peter and Andrew, and they had another group of friends named James and John. And John is actually the one who wrote the gospel that is before us. And they were from Bethsaida, just off the banks there of the Sea of Galilee. And despite being these workmen, evidently they had an interest in pursuing truth, because they were admirers of one called John the Baptist. They were disciples of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way for Jesus, the one who would save the world from their sins. In fact, one time, John the Baptist looked across and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew, the little brother, invited his older brother, Peter, to meet Jesus, and it was there where Jesus changed his name from Simon, which means hearer, to Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. Some time had passed after that, and Jesus met up with Peter after a night of fishing. And his experience of fishing was very similar to mine, where he didn't catch any fish at all. And he said to him, why don't you put out deep? And despite having fished all night, he said, okay, I'll do what you tell me to do. And you remember the story, as that he did just what Jesus had asked, and he caught all sorts of fish. And Peter went up to Jesus and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So despite... This this rough and uh, tough exterior. He was aware of his sin, and he was aware of the holiness of Jesus. Now, when you come from Bethsaida or Galilee, you get a bit of a reputation for being pushy and forceful. The people from this area had their own dialect or their own accent. Think Boston or Philadelphia or New York. It was forceful. It was pushy and and people could tell immediately where you were from in fact later on in Peter's life as he is standing before this educated court at the end of his talk the people say to themselves he is an unlearned man but Jesus just says to him I'm going to make you a fisher of men And he becomes one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, whenever there is a list of the 12 disciples provided in the gospel, it is Peter who is at the top of that list. And in the Bible, that means that he is the leader. And he is the most outspoken of all the disciples. He seems to be the one that speaks on their behalf. And because there is so much material on Peter in the gospels, we see all sorts of his flaws. But I think we could say that if other disciples were mentioned as frequently as Peter, well, we would see their flaws as well. There was a time where Jesus walked on water. Peter went out and walked on water, or at least for a few steps. There was a time where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter answered correctly. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter James and John, again, John, the author of this gospel, were invited to the great mountain there where Jesus was transfigured. His glory was shown to these men. When they came down from that mountain, someone came up to Jesus and said, I noticed you haven't paid your temple tax. And so Jesus had this idea, Peter, why don't you go out fishing? And and the first fish you catch with that hook Open its mouth and you will see exact change, not only for my temple tax, but for yours as well, Peter. Near the end of Jesus' ministry, his life, he wanted to have this Last Supper with his disciples. We'll be participating in the Lord's Supper this morning. But in preparation for that, he asked Peter and John to go up and prepare the room. And you remember in John 13 where Jesus wash the disciples' feet. And it was Peter who said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then after the Lord's Supper, Jesus made this prediction. He said to his disciples, You will all fall away. But Peter said, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In other words, you know you're probably right about all these others. I've been watching them too, Jesus. They probably will fall away, but rest assured, I will never fall away. And Jesus responds by saying, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. In response to that, Peter says, Even even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Luke put it this way, Jesus said to him, Simon Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fall. In other words, I'm not sure if you know much about sifting wheat. I I don't. But the idea is here's a here's a pile of wheat, and you take a bowl or some sort of a container and you throw it up in the air. And the useless stuff, the chaff is blown away and the wheat actually falls to the ground. The point is, is that it's unskilled labor. And anyone can sift wheat. It's simple. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is in just a matter of moments, Satan could sift you out. He could take you. you. You think you're so strong, but he could take you out. And the last time we were together in John 18, we actually saw the strength and the bravery and the impulsiveness of Peter in John 18, verse 10, where it says he had a sword, he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now that's where we left off. And so that is Peter's past. Now let's consider over the next couple of minutes his Present. Let's look at John 18, beginning here in verse 15, remind you of the context. Jesus has been arrested. And according to Matthew 26, verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. But of all those disciples that left and fled, there were two that would return back. Look at what it says here in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus according to Matthew 26, verse 58, at a distance. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now once again, when Jesus was arrested, all these disciples fleed, but Peter and another disciple came back. Now who is the other disciple? We're not exactly sure, but it very well could have been John. Because John doesn't typically identify himself, and this disciple is not identified here. If it is John, and that would be my guess, evidently he knows the high priest. Coming from a fishing business, perhaps the high priest knew Zebedee's dad, and now he is at at a level of comfort with the high priest where he wants to see what's going on with Jesus. Verse 16 says, But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciples, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. As if to say, he's with me. Allow him to come in and to see from a distance what is taking place with Jesus. Look at verse 17 where we see the first denial. The servant girl... At the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, when you just carefully read that verse, there's a few things that stick out. One, it looks as if Peter is afraid of a servant girl. This would have been one that had no influence, no authority, or no power to inflict harm onto Peter but he is afraid. The second thing we see here in verse 17 is what she says. She says, you also are not one of these man's disciples, are you? So she knew that John was a disciple and nothing bad had happened to John. But she is saying, are you also one of this man's disciples? And so it would seem like, what does the brother have to fear here? Another disciple is even being let in, and no harm is taking place. But yet he denies Jesus. Look what it says here in verse 18. Now the servants and officers have made a charcoal fire, because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing And warming himself. It's ironic here that the great, bold, the confident, the strong one Peter is not identifying himself with Jesus here. Rather, he is identifying himself with Jesus' enemies, much like Judas. Now let's look at verse 25 where we just skip ahead to see the next denial. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself So they said to him, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now Matthew 26, verse 73, sheds some more light on this, where he actually offers an oath, as if to say, I give you my word that I am not one of his followers. Or worse, I swear to God, That I'm not with him. And so he was given an opportunity to redeem himself. Instead, he actually denies him a second time. And then verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again Denied it. According to Matthew 26, verse 74, what Peter actually did at this third denial is he began to invoke a curse on himself. Paraphrase? I don't know what the blankety-blank you're talking about because I do not know this blankety blanking man. So it's not that he just denied, but he emphatically denied Jesus. And at once, a rooster crowed. According to Luke, the Lord looked and turned to see Peter. According to Mark, his response was one of breaking down and weeping. Think about that. Here's the self-made man that is now crumbling to tears. According to Luke, he went out and wept bitterly he denied jesus 3 times peter's denial was not theological it was not that he was saying jesus is not the son of god or jesus is not god or jesus is not the promised one his denial was personal i do not know him i'm not a follower of his I have not spent time with him. I, I don't even have a relationship with him. This little story reveals the power of people's opinions of us. I'm bringing, thinking back to my days in school when I was a psych major. They would have these experiments that I thought were probably kind of insightful. There was one by a guy named Solomon Ash. And he would do these conformity experiments. And so he would, he would at first take a group of students and in private, and it was just them, he would have them go through a series of exercises and say, okay, there's a line on your left. Which does it match with? Either A, B, or C? And how many of you are paying attention this morning? What would the answer be? Exactly. And so they would go through this experiment on their own and virtually all of them would get 100%. I think it was 99.9% did they get right. But then he would take the same exercise and he would send a student in a room of actors. And he would tell the actors in advance, we're going to bring this guy in and we're going to mess with him. <laughs> and so the first few, as we show this up there, um, why don't you get it right and say C? But after a while, we want you to say something like A and, and B. And we want to see how this person responds. And they would have that person be the last one to answer. And so they'd go around a room, and the actors would intentionally get it wrong. And you know it wasn't no longer 100% correct. It was more like, correct. Think about that. Something as so elementary as what line matches with another, people would conform to what others thought of them. And so before you pile on Peter, let me remind you of what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. He said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are, what church? Few. So followers of Jesus will be few, but then they're going to be surrounded by people that will reject Jesus. We might say, well, I would never deny Jesus. Is that true? We deny Jesus when we choose not to share the gospel out of fear of what others will think of us. We deny Jesus when we refuse to offer prayer for another in public. We deny Jesus when we do not speak up for biblical truth. We deny Jesus when we shut him out and engage in a sinful habit again. We deny Jesus when we keep our relationship with him as a secret and do not talk about him with our friends. Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. You see, Peter wasn't willing to identify with Jesus, but Jesus would be willing to identify with Peter. Now, what we see is Judas, who is identifying with Jesus' enemies, as well as what we've seen Peter had done. One of them turns out suicide, right? But the other one is saved. And actually, it's just one chapter in his life story. How severe is it to deny Jesus? Let me just read to you a verse from the book of Revelation. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Denying Jesus, being a coward, is sinful. Well, let's consider now Peter's future. There was Peter's past. We got a biographical sketch we saw he was present where he denied Jesus three times. Well, what was his future? I got great news for you. Peter is restored. You see, Jesus died for the cowards. Peter was unwilling to identify with Jesus, but Jesus was willing to identify with Peter and his sin. And while Peter deserved the penalty of his sin, the penalty of burning in a lake of fire, Jesus stepped in and took the penalty so that Peter would not have to. And do you remember that restoring passage later here in the Gospel of John? Where Peter is going out and he is fishing. And once again, after Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus looks out and says, Children, do you have any fish? Peter and his friends say no. This time he says, why don't you take your net? and cast it on the other side, the right side. And it's there where they catch, I think, 153 fish. And then there's this intimate conversation that takes place between Jesus and Peter, where forgiveness is not only offered, but he is reinstated as a disciple and the leader of these disciples. I wonder this morning, can anyone relate to Peter? Have you blown it? Was it public like Peter? A failed marriage? Lost your job? Filed for bankruptcy? Having a falling out with your child or with your parent? Committed a crime? Disappointed people that love you the most? Here's the good news. The story is not over. We can look at Peter's story and we see how he was restored And let me tell you that Jesus is still in the business of restoring you. Forgiveness and grace is offered. The second thing we see here of Peter's future is Peter learns from his failure. There is something that's called fail forward. I think what that means is when you fail, it doesn't mean that your life has to become a mess and stop at that moment. In fact... God might be using that failure as a turning point in your life. I think that is certainly true of Peter's life. He needed some humbling. And God allowed him to experience this failure in his life to introduce some compassion and empathy. He also needed to realize that he couldn't do anything in his own strength. And he is a changed man in his repentance And then in the book of Acts, as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, it is Peter, whom God raises up, the failure to preach the first sermon in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 souls are added to the church on that day. It was in Acts 4 that this unlearned fisherman stands before these educated officials, and he makes this claim that Jesus is the stone you builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. And he says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Do you think the name of Jesus took on greater significance in Peter's life on the other side of his failure? You see, here's the point. God wants to take our failures and make a life message out of them. When Peter preached about the name of Jesus, he was preaching from experience, from conviction. This Jesus can take a failed life like mine and he can use you. He's done it in my life. And he'll do it in yours. This is what he is saying here. He preached with conviction. He knew Jesus to be true. And Acts 10, when it's time, the perfect timing of God to open the door, not just for Jews to receive the gospel, but for Gentiles. Who does God use? But the broken, the ordinary, the failed man, right? Peter. It was him that could say, if God can allow me to receive the gospel, well, then this gospel is available to everyone, including the Gentiles. Do you see how God allowed him to experience some failure? And that was the key to actually using him broadly and widely. The third thing we see here of his future, and I think this is helpful for us, local church, is that Peter shares his failure with others. Most people believe that the gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. Okay, There's no debate there. But I also think that most people believe that John Mark was actually Peter's gospel And John Mark is the one who is actually writing it. He is the secretary. And of the Gospels, John Mark, or rather the Gospel of Mark, is seen as the first one written. And Matthew and Luke seem to have that as a source as the Lord is using them to write out the other Gospels. What's the significance of all of that? If it indeed is Peter's Gospel Note the courage in sharing his story for all of us to see. We are thankful for that. Not only this, but he has given to us the first and second Peter, these books that we can read as well. And I don't know about you, but I can look back into my past and I can see all sorts of failure. But when I read about Peter, I am enormously encouraged to see that his life did not stop during this public failure. In fact, it seemed as if his life only got good after he was restored, after he learned from it, and after he shared that with others. So church family as we meet with one another in small groups or Sunday school classes or over coffee or over meals, yes, let us share the wonderful things that God has done, the great successes in our life, thanking God for those. But my suspicion is that we will not only be benefiting from those, but also from hearing from the failures in people's lives as well. I could think of my own life being back there in the library several years ago during a parenting class where a mother said, you know, there was a time in my life where there was a child of mine that would just not shut up. It always was talking. And after a while, I just kind of, I just kind of shut down and I did not, did not honor that person's conversation. And now they're older and they're in their teen years. And when I want them to open up, they won't open up. And I'm telling you, I don't remember much of that curriculum on that class, but I remember that story that she shared. I can remember another parent that, as they were raising their children, were, were gone one weekend after another for sports. And now they were on the other side of that and said, you know, if I could do it over again, I wouldn't have been on that train. We would have had more balance. I would have had my, my child in." In church, and in, in ministry, and doing that sort of thing. And I'm telling you, I don't remember parenting books that I've read, but I remember that story. I can remember people in ministry that were talking about how the Lord was using them, but they got their eyes off their family, and how that had crippling effects. And, and I I'm, imagine you can think of your own life, where there were people that opened up, and you were able to learn from their, their failings. So here's the message for you today. Let's learn from Peter that the Lord will take people that have blown it. In fact, we have all blown it. But it could be that the Lord is just beginning to use you now. Receive the grace of God. Receive the forgiveness that is granted. Allow him to restore. Yes, learn from that. And then be willing to share that with others. Before we take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments, I wonder if we could just have a time of prayer. And Scott, feel free to come, and Ms. Vana, And I'd I'd just like to open this up for prayer. You may want to sing the song, but you may want to come to the altar and pray. Why don't we just bring ourselves, our failures and all, and just say, Lord, here is my life. If you could use Peter and him denying you three times, then you can use me. Forgive me for the sins of my life. I think there are some people that, that just kind of never get over some of their pains and their regrets. But let's just let's have a turning point this morning where we say, enough is enough. I'm moving on from this. Restore me. Use this pain that my life would be changed from here. I want to walk in the grace that is provided. Perhaps you've looked around and you've seen all this, these revived lives and you say, I want to come. And I want that revived life of my own. And you may come to the altar today and pray just for that. We're not coming today saying, let's try harder. We're coming today saying the Lord has done everything that we needed by dying on the cross. We're receiving the grace He's provided and death could not conquer Him. He raised from the dead and may this resurrection power be released and applied on a daily basis in our lives. Father, we thank You for this simple story where we get the. Follow a man's life and see his ups and downs and we see his failings and we see that that's only just one chapter in his whole story. And we have chapters like that as well. But you've begun a good work in us and you're going to continue to do that work. And so help us not to hinder you, but open ourselves to say, do it in me as well.